0: We're going to be reading verses 1 through 15, Genesis 3. The text is probably very familiar to many of you. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden Heavenly Father, Lord, we do require your grace this morning if we are to profit from your word. We call on you, O Father, and ask that, Lord, you would be pleased to meet us here at this place and bless us, O Father, with understanding and hearts that are changed by that understanding. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen and amen. For the benefit of those who are visiting with us, and for those who have missed the last couple of weeks, uh, and giving birth to children is no excuse for missing this stuff, by the way. Just to get a little laugh out of the back (laughs) row, It's a great excuse for missing, actually. (laughs) For the benefit of those who have missed last week or the week before, we've been looking at God's covenants, God's covenants, and uh, I, I... I, it's so great i even sent a note to presbytery about this i mean it, it, the teaching on the covenants is not something that i decided to do it was something you decided to do um, you several of you approached me over the the issue of covenantal baptism and that's what's that's why we're doing this right now and that's wonderful it's absolutely wonderful uh, that uh, this interest is um, is there and Uh, As I thought originally, as I said a couple of weeks ago, I was going to just prepare one message on covenantal baptism, preach it, and and then uh, move on. But as I thought about doing that, we hear so very little about the covenants. You can listen to thousands and thousands of sermons and never hear anything about the covenants, which really is unfortunate. And that is certainly not an indictment against any of you. That's an indictment for those of us who stand on this side of the pulpit. Uh, not on the other side. This is an indictment against the leadership uh, of the church at large. Uh, the word covenant appears all over the place in the Bible. In the English Standard Version, it appears to the tune of 325 times. Uh, that's a lot of occurrences uh, to be uh, pretty much ignoring the teaching of the covenant. Uh, the Hebrew word barit it was the word we translate in covenant uh, with covenant, Appears in the Old Testament uh, scriptures 200, I think 86, 286 times, and the Greek word diatheke, which is the Greek, roughly the Greek equivalent, appears like 33 times. So this is something that is not just some little off, uh, uh, little doctrine that's off in the corner somewhere that's minor. This is a major, major thing that we come to look at uh, this morning. But my guess is that you have rarely heard of the word covenant, or have rarely heard messages preached on the covenant. Now, for the sake of review, uh, we have said that a covenant, I've given you two famous definitions of the covenant, one by O'Palmer Robertson, who wrote a book in the 80s, I think it was in 1980, called Christ of the Covenants, which has really become a classic on this subject. He said a covenant is a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. A bond in blood, sovereignly administered. But um, you might recall the the definition I give you from Rollock, Robert Rollock, which I is one I've been favoring as a promise under some certain condition. A covenant is a promise under some certain condition. And I think it's uh, maybe easier for us to grasp that. Um, the essence of the covenant, you may recall two weeks ago, We looked at Leviticus 26 and verse 12. Uh, That's one of the many places in the scriptures where we really have a statement that speaks to the essence of the covenant. Namely, where God says, I'm going to dwell with you. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to be your God and you are going to be my people. That speaks to the essence of the covenant and Uh, Last week I introduced, actually it was over the course of the last two weeks, I introduced a statement that's in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7, and the first statement in chapter 7, the first uh, paragraph, if you will, in chapter 7, which basically says this, that the distance between us and God is so great that we could never have any fruition of blessedness from his hand or reward from his hand unless he first condescended down to meet us. And it goes on to say that God has done this. He has condescended down to meet us. And this condescension, God coming down to meet us, is expressed in Scripture as a covenant. Now, what could be more important than that? Now, I think for the most part, here's one of the problems that we have. If I might make application right now and just get it out of the way, I think for the most part, one of our problems is we take it for granted that God would be our God. Now, I brought this up a couple of weeks ago, and I think I don't think that's really I think it's rarely challenged. I think we've all grown up thinking, well, surely God will be our God. Um, I don't think we think any other way. And unfortunately, I think we've even pressed this in, more, in the last uh, few decades, even a little further, to think that perhaps, and as I say we in this, I don't I, I mean the, the world at large as well as the church, because unfortunately, oftentimes uh, we as the church look a lot like the world in res- these kinds of respects. that we may even go further to, to even think that God know, that God owes us happiness. Uh, that he owes us prosperity that he owes us fruitfulness that he owes us uh, all of these things and uh, now now why why would i suggest that why would i be suggesting that I, I just give you one reason it's because of all the grumbling and complaining that we do what is what does grumbling and complaining makes a statement what is that statement you've heard me say this before grumbling and complaining in essence, is saying, God, you haven't been good enough to me. And this is just a general rule. I don't want to press this all the time, but I'm just going to make a general rule. It's been my experience that I often have heard the most grumbling and complaining by people who have it the best. And it's the people who've had a rough ride in many cases. A really rough ride. You won't hear them complain. Go to the top floor. It used to be the top floor of children's hospital and go visit those kids. A lot of times you won't hear them complain. They take every blessing, you know, as precious. Don't they? But grumbling and complaining says, Lord, you you just haven't been good enough to me. I don't mean to be unkind, but I want to suggest that this is an arrogant assertion and that the ancients and our forefathers would think this is the height of arrogance. It's the height of arrogance and it it blinds us. You know, it blinds us. When we, in the secret chambers of our heart, suggest or even ask the question, why wouldn't you be our God? That's the height of arrogance. As we're going to see, there's lots of reasons why God would choose not to be our God. And I say it's a blinding arrogance. I say it's a blinding arrogance because it brings God down. It exalts ourselves. And in order for God to bring any kind of healing to us, He has to do something about this blindness. He has to use use the words of Jesus. He has to give us eyes that see and give us ears that hear. Uh, why would Jesus speak that way? Because naturally, out of the box, we don't have eyes that see. We don't have ears that hear. We can hear all this stuff, and it, wa- it runs off our backs like water off of the back of a duck, doesn't it? God has to perform this spiritual surgery on us. He has to do this spiritual surgery. He has to get busy, roll his sleeves up, wheel us into his operating room, and he has to give us a new heart. It's, it's as simple as that. He doesn't make reparation to our old parts. He gives us a new heart a new heart, and he has to put a new spirit in us, a spirit and a heart that doesn't run from him, a spirit and a heart that doesn't rebel against him, a spirit and a heart that desires him. God has to do this, and in a few minutes we're going to see that it is within the framework of a covenant that God does this work. It's in the framework of a covenant that he does this Now, we began our study two weeks ago by stepping back into eternity, which was fun to do. It was fun to prepare that message. I hope you enjoyed it. It's fun looking at all of these passages of Scripture we have where we... They're mysterious passages where they speak of what was going on before the foundation of the world, before the creation of the world, before time began. And as we begin to look and as we begin to study those passages, we we make this discovery that God has been pleased to reveal to us that out of eternity past, there was an agreement made between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit and the father said something to the likeness of this: "I'm going to give a people to the son." And the son said, "Yes, I'm going to redeem those people." And the I'm going to redeem those people by coming and coming in the flesh, coming in the person of Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit said, "Yeah, I'm going to empower. I'm going to empower this Christ who will come in terms of his human nature. I'm going to give him the empowerment that he needs to accomplish." Uh, what he has been given to do. And we call this great agreement the covenant of redemption. Uh, It's a a fantastic, fantastic doctrine, the covenant of redemption. Now, sometimes people will listen to things like this and they'll think, that's a lot of heavy theology. We don't need all of that heavy theology. What does all that heavy theology got to do with us? Well, are you in Christ this morning? What, is it, what do we mean by in Christ? In other words, if you are you embracing Him? Have you fled from your sins in order to embrace Him, in order to hold him, in order to have him as your Savior? Trusting Him to deliver you from, uh, from the, the penalty of your sins, have you, have you ran to Him uh, believing that you're, you're it's in your best welfare and in your best intentions to grab Him because that's where your happiness belongs properly is in Christ Jesus. Have you embraced Him that way? If the answer is yes and you have embraced Him that way, you have indeed done that. It is your volition. It is your will. It is your decision. You have done that. But there's a reason you did that. And it's because out of eternity past, the Father... Gave you to the son. And the son agreed to come in the person of Jesus Christ. And redeem you. And that is life changing. The Holy Spirit gave Jesus in terms of his humanity. Everything he needed to accomplish the task. That made it completely certain it could not fail. You're in Christ because God has come after you. You are His. I am His. What could be more practical and heartwarming than that? That's theology. And it's lovely. And we're all about it here, aren't we? You want to call us theology nerds? Go ahead. Our hearts are all the warmer. Amen? Amen. Amen. Now, last week we discussed a second covenant called the covenant of works. And if you just turn back to Genesis 2, 7, a great verse there where God he's creating the first man and he reaches down into the dust, you know, of the earth. And, you know, it's a mysterious verse because God doesn't have hands. He's a spirit. But again, he's speaking baby talk to us. He condescends to speak baby talk to us, and this is how he speaks baby talk to us. He says, "I took the first, I took this big handful of dust in my hands, you know, and I held it in my hands, and then this lifeless corpse of dust, I, I breathed, I breathed into this lifeless corpse of dust, and this lifeless corpse of dust became a living being, and his name is Adam." Isn't that a wonderful, wonderful passage of scripture? And furthermore, God had prepared this utopian paradise, this Garden of Eden for Adam. He prepared this place for him. That kind of sounds familiar, you know, say, I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a place for you so that where you are, I might be as well. Sound familiar? Kind of like John 14 a little bit. And he creates this utopian paradise for Adam, custom made for Adam. And he places Adam in this utopian paradise. And you read the t- testimony, and, and I, I like to share this at weddings. It's wonderful. There man is, you know. And God introduces him to his creation, and he gives Adam the authority and the great privilege of naming all the other creatures, you know. And it's, I think it's this very playful. As I read it and understand it, it's this very playful discourse between God and Adam. And A- God brings in each creature, and he asks Adam, what do you... What are you going to call this one, Adam? Whatever you call it, that'll be its name. What are you going to call it? And Adam gives the various creatures their names. He's able to stand before a tiger with no fear and just be able to take in the magnificence of a tiger. You know, its power and its might and with no fear, he's able to name it. And and this goes on. And and um, as this goes on, it becomes apparent to Adam that there's no suitable companion So the father causes Adam to fall into his sleep and he removes one of his ribs. God is a surgeon, you know. He removes one of his ribs and out of that rib he creates the first woman, Eve. And here we have the people of God. God is dwelling with them, right? You think of that covenantal phrase, I will dwell and walk with you. Adam and Eve are in the garden. They're enjoying the company of Almighty God face to face, aren't they? I will walk among you. I will dwell among you. I will be your God. You shall be my people. And God enters into a covenant with Adam. And it's a a covenant in theology we call the covenant of works. It's a covenant of works because Adam has the law written on his heart. He knows what's right and wrong is, and he is capable of actually performing right uh, completely. And he walks before God. But God's, God gives him this command. Now, I used to be very confused by this command. In chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, Adam is told to abstain from this one certain tree, isn't he? And I can remember reading that passage and thinking, what is so awful bad about that tree? Because I, I always likened it as getting into the cookie jar. I couldn't see past getting into the cookie jar. But everything is about that tree. God tells Adam not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in doing that, this tree becomes, and I might put it this way, as I've said last week, Adam's refusal to eat from this tree is the crowning jewel of his allegiance to Almighty God. It's the crowning jewel of his obedience to the Almighty God. It is actually a display before the entire cosmos that Adam's allegiance is God. This is no small thing. This is not sneaking into the freezer and stealing the Christmas cookies. This is a way bigger matter than that. Now, what does Adam do? Adam's, the promises are life. If he abstains from the tree, the promise is life. We understand from Romans 5, this is a probationary period. The promise is life. The penalty is what? The penalty is death. Of course, we know what happens. Uh, Adam eats from the tree. And when he eats from the tree, uh, the promise is made good and he plunges into darkness. And there he dies spiritually immediately. And later he died physically And we have understood in our studies that we all died with him, didn't we? Romans 5 makes it very clear that all humanity plunged into darkness uh, with, with Adam. The loving intimacy that he enjoyed with God became malicious estrangement. Malicious estrangement. And it's here where we pick up this morning. I want to pick up with a question. The question I want to pick up with is how does God respond to this? You know, how does God respond to this? What does God do? He, he would have been perfectly just to destroy Adam. And ask yourself if you agree with that, because uh, that's an important thing to agree with. Because uh, that is not something that our culture agrees with. And I would say that's not something that a large portion of the church agrees with, Unfortunately. This see, it goes back to this entitlement attitude that we have so much today. God owes us something. He owes us life and happiness and all this. Listen, that pride has to be fractured and we're not going to get this at all. Adam, before the entire cosmos, he literally spit in God's face. God would have been perfectly just to have destroyed him and we fell with him. And each one of us has done that in our own ways, have we not? We do that every time we sin. God would have been perfectly just to come in and destroy Adam, but but that's not what He does. That's not what He does. What does He do? If you look at our text, if you look at uh, Genesis 3, and we're really only going to look at verses 14 and 15 this morning. I'm not going to develop the whole thing, but verses 4, I've kind of already done that actually. But verses 14 and 15 is, are going to be our focus. And verse 14, He is speaking to the serpent, uh, who is Satan indeed himself, and he says, because you have done this, namely tempting Eve, deceiving Eve, uh, tempting Adam and deceiving them he says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. You see God marches in the garden and he he he, he issues judgment uh, Satan is going to is going to be eternally destroyed if you will. Uh, He could have done that to Adam and Eve as well, but he doesn't. Look what he does in verse 15. He says, I will put enmity between, still speaking with the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Some of you are pretty familiar with this verse. But I think you, if you are pretty familiar with this verse, you may recall a time when you found this verse to be really cryptic, didn't you? What in the world is this all about? And you had a number of questions for it. Maybe for the start, what is this word enmity? A lot of times when I'm explaining this passage to people, people will ask me, what is what is enmity? Uh, in, in the Hebrew, it, it simply means hatred. It's, uh, you know, berah is, is the Hebrew word and it, it means hatred. Uh, What God is saying here is there's going to be hatred between Satan and the woman. Between Satan and the woman, there's going to be this hatred. And uh, we see if you continue to look in the verse, we're going to see that there'll be hatred between Satan's offspring and the woman's offspring. Can you see that? I'm looking for some heads to do this. Okay. Well, here's a question. Who is the offspring of the woman? Who is the offspring of the serpent? Well, the answer to this becomes really clear in the next chapter if you've read chapter four ever. If you've read that chapter, uh, then you understand that Adam and Eve, they they conceive and they have two sons, don't they? And one son is Abel, the other son is Cain. If you've never read that sometime this afternoon, take a minute and read chapter four. Uh, Abel... Uh, grows up to be a shepherd. Cain grows up to be a farmer. And though these two men are brothers, they're radically different in terms of their relationship with God. They're radically different in terms of their relationship with God. Both of them worship. Both of them offer offerings to the Lord. Abel, his offering, is accepted. Cain, his offering, is not accepted. So both of them show up on Sunday morning. They're always there. And when it's time to stand, they stand. When it's time to sit down, they sit down. Uh, When it's time to sing, they sing. Uh, When it's time to listen, they listen. But one is giving their heart. The other is simply going through the motions. Just simply going through the motions. Which is easy to do. It's easy to come into a place like this and just go through the motions. It's time to stand. Let's get up. It's time to sit down. Let's sit down. Oh, here's a song. I like this song. It's a wonderful melody. I like that melody. Okay, it's time to sit still for about 40 minutes. Okay, it's time to go. See, we can go through that, can't we? And on the outside, everything looks fine. But we've just went through the motions. Just went through the motions. Now, as Cain realizes, Abel's offering is accepted, and his is not, how does he respond? He responds in jealousy, doesn't he? And that jealousy, you know, it, it it grows and it grows. Even though God warns him about that jealousy, it grows and it grows to where Cain finally murders his brother Abel, doesn't he? He murders him. There's that hatred again, isn't it? Kinds of sounds like Genesis 3.15, doesn't it? Between your offspring and her offspring, there will be enmity. So here Abel is representative of the offspring of the woman, while Cain is representative of the offspring of the serpent. I might put it another way. Cain is representative of the world. Abel is representative of the church. And throughout the rest of the Bible, we have we have this whole idea of really only, there's only really two types of people, isn't there? Throughout the rest of the Bible. There are those who we could call the church and there are those who are opposed to the church. There are those who call on the Lord and there are those who continue to rebel against the Lord. Right? Now, one of the things that has really struck me as as recently, this is actually fairly recently, is the importance of sitting down and reading large portions of the Bible at one time in terms of our devotional life. You know, for for really, uh, probably for the the, the the better part of my own personal devotional life, I followed these reading plans, you know. There's a lot of really good reading plans, you know. Some of your Bibles have them in the back. And, okay, you've got, uh, uh, today is October, what is it, 2nd, October two? Is this October two? I think it is. October 2nd, and... Um, you look in the back and, OK, we're to read Psalm 1 and Matthew 13 and et cetera, et cetera. And OK, that's our reading for the day. And that's good. That's fine. I, I've, I've I got to say, for the most part, that's been really largely my uh, devotional exercise. And some of you recall a few years ago. Uh, we, we uh, when January rolled around, we decided to, that we were going to do this as a church. We were going to read through the whole Bible this year. And you remember, I used to print those readings in the, in the bulletin. And many of you read through the entire Bible that year for the first time. But unfortunately, when we do that, we don't see a lot of themes as easily. You can still see them, but there's something to be said about sitting down and reading Genesis in one sitting or in a couple of sittings. Sitting down and reading these books, and one sitting. Because when you do that, you're going to begin to see that there are themes that run through these books. And when you do that with Genesis, you're going to discover that there's this theme, this offspring theme. Let, let me show it to you. If you turn to Genesis 12, just turn to Genesis 12, and look at verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And now look at verse three here. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse. And this last line in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see that last line? In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All right, hold on to that and turn to chapter 18. In chapter 18, the context is Abraham receives uh, this visit from these three mysterious visitors. And verse 1, 10, 13, 14, and 17 tell us that this visit is from the Lord. And if you look at verses 17 and 18 with me, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham What I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation. And look at this last line. All the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. You see that? Now turn to chapter 22, a famous chapter where uh, Abraham uh, is called to offer up his son Isaac And Abraham goes through with it, but at the last minute, the Lord calls it off. And if you look at verse 18, you see verse 18 there? In your what? In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. The Hebrew word Zerah, and it's second person singular. It's second person singular. In your offspring. So you see the thread there of offspring? It doesn't just run all the way through. If you begin looking for it, you're going to see it all over the place. And it doesn't just run through Genesis. It runs through the entire Bible. Uh, For example, turn back to Galatians 3. To our scripture memory verse. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to what? His offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is what? It's Christ. It's Christ. Now, back to our question. Uh, Upon Adam's rebellion, what does God do? He promises Christ. It's the exact opposite of what you would expect him to do. He promises Christ. And here is the covenant of redemption. Working itself out in time. <clears throat> here, that Eternal agreement between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are working, is, is working itself out in time. The Father says, I'm, "I'm going to give." He says to the Son, "I'm going to give you some." I'm going to give you people, and the Son says, "I'm going to come in the person of Jesus Christ, and I'm going to redeem those people." And the Holy Spirit is, "I'm going to make that happen." And in the fullness of time, the Holy Spirit overshadows a certain Mary impregnating her with who? Christ. And the second person of the Trinity, by way of the birth canal, enters into space and time and history, making good on this eternal covenant of redemption. And now we refer to the same covenant in theology as the covenant of grace, a promised son. What a wonderful... Wonderful doctrine. Let me ask this question again from a slightly different angle. When Adam broke the covenant of works in the garden, how does God respond? Well, he responds with a covenant of friendship, a covenant of grace. Let's go back to the essence of that covenant. What is the essence of that covenant? God says, I'm going to dwell among you, I'm going I'm to walk with you. I'm going to be your God. And I'm going to come to take you as my people. And do you just see how that, you know, it's starting to sound like Christmas time, isn't it? We could start saying, Oh, come, oh, come, amen, you will. Do you see that? Isn't that wonderful? Who are the parties of this covenant? Here we need to make an important distinction. I mean, narrowly speaking, we would say the parties of this covenant are the Father and the true believer. The Father and the true believer. But broadly speaking, and it's important that we understand this, and I'll probably say more about this next week as I apply this to baptism. Uh, Narrowly speaking, uh, there have been people who indeed are in the covenant of grace with God who are not true believers. And that's, yes, I saw a couple heads, kind of. That's, that's, did I just hear that right? <laughs> that's, a, that's a knee-jerking thing, isn't it? Throughout the history of the covenant of grace, there have been people who are in the covenant who are not true believers. Let me give you some examples. The Israelites wandering in the desert just after they'd been delivered through the Red Sea. Are they in covenant with God? Yes, they're in covenant with God. Were they true believers? No, many of them fell in the desert, didn't they? Another example, what about uh, Ishmael, Esau, the sons of Eli? We might say, well, that's just Old Testament stuff. Okay, let's go to the New Testament. How about the chief priests, the scribes, the elders and the Pharisees? Are they in covenant? I think we read that and we say, no, they're not in covenant. Yes, they are in covenant. How do we know they're in covenant? They're circumcised men. What is the sign of the covenant in that administration? It's circumcision. These are circumcised men. They're in covenant. Are they true believers? No. And this helps explain why the author to the letter of Hebrews fires two warning shots in that letter. He fires one in chapter 10 when he says anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant? And has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine. I will repay again. The Lord will judge his people. This is a warning shot to people who are in the covenant of grace, who are just going through the motions. And if we are only going through the motions, our hearts are at enmity. With the offspring of the woman. You see the connection there? If we're sitting here this morning and we're just going through the motions, this is a warning shot. It's not the only warning shot. If you're a reader of Hebrews, you know one's come up in chapter 6. For it is impossible, chapter 6, verses 4 to 6, it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come if they then fall away since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. This is not speaking to the world. The world hasn't tasted of the gift. This is speaking to people who have tasted of the gift. These are people who have come to the table. These are people like the chief priests, scribes, elders and Pharisees who have enjoyed blessings from the covenant of grace. But yet are spurning the blood of the covenant, namely the blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because he inaugurates the covenant, doesn't he? In a few minutes when we come to the table, one of the things that I repeat every time I officiate the Lord's Supper is when he takes the cup. And he holds it up. What does he say? This is the cup of the covenant poured out in what? My blood. (laughs) Poured out in my blood. What are the conditions of the covenant? We see the parties of the covenant, narrowly speaking, as the father and the true believer. But in the church, it's a mixture, isn't it? Of true believers and people who are just going through their emotions. It's a mixture. What are the conditions of the covenant? Here we have to be very careful. The conditions. In fact, some have said, I'm not even going to speak of the conditions of the covenant because of the risk. I think if we're careful, we should speak of the conditions of the covenant. What are the conditions of the covenant? Their faith and repentance. But here's where we need to be careful. Don't think that by your faith and your repentance, you've earned your stay in the covenant of grace. If you think of it that way, you've you're got it all wrong. Remember, out of eternity past, you were given to the Son. And that if God had not done this spiritual surgery on you, you would have never have chosen Jesus. Did you choose Jesus? Yes, you did. But why did you? Because of what God has done in your heart and in your life. Well, all I'm trying to say is this. Faith and repentance is a gift. Faith and repentance is a gift. Acts 5.31, Acts 3.26, Acts 11.18, 2 Timothy 2.25. Faith and repentance is a gift. We speak of conditions in the covenant, but we do so very carefully. The conditions of the covenant are true faith, saving faith and repentance. But don't, don't glory in that. That's not meritorious. You're simply exercising a gift that God has given you what do we have that we have not received says the apostle paul what do we have that we have not received so the condition of faith is or the condition of the covenant is faith what are the promises listen to this verse and i'll conclude on this verse listen to this verse this is from the very end of the bible revelation 21 verse 3 john in his in his in his great vision he He says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, and listen to this. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. What does that sound like? It's the essence of the covenant, isn't it? I will be your God. You shall be my people. That's the promise. And every attendant blessing that comes with that is the promise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do ask for your grace as we process this. For some of us, this is a review. We've known this for some time, but it warms our hearts to hear it over and over again. And we love the sound of it, Father. We love the melody of it. For we recognize it is nothing but the gospel itself. For others, this morning may be the very first time they've heard anything like this. And Father, we especially pray for anyone who would fall into that camp. That, Father, you would be pleased to teach and to lead and to guide and to nurture all of us. For those of us who have heard this over and over again, we need your nurture equally as much. But we especially pray for those who are hearing all this and thinking, wow, boy, is my head spinning. Father, we ask that, Lord, you would work in our hearts in such a way, Father, that we would come to understand these beautiful things, that you would create a taste in our hearts for this melody. It's an acquired taste. It's one that you put in in our hearts that we would begin to love the sound of it that it would truly be warming to our souls to hear that melody and we would want to play it over and over and over again. For, oh, Father, we will hear that melody through all eternity and we'll never get tired of it. We'll never, ever come to a place where there's not a play a part of it that we've never really understood or heard. or It'll always be intriguing to us. So, Father, we pray that you'll do this work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen any man